All right, so we are in this series called Love Walked Among Us. And, and just briefly again, here is the idea of the series, if you, if you haven't been with us. We believe that Jesus is God, and we believe that God so embodies the love in his character that John the Apostle at one point says, God is love. And so if Jesus is God and Jesus literally walked this earth, what we could say is love walked among us, the perfect picture of what love should be. And so we are taking time throughout this series to look at Jesus and we're, we're kind of looking at his movements. We're kind of looking at how he walks. We're kind of looking at what he does in order to get to know him more, in order to see how he loves, in order to see what love truly is. And so this series for me has been stretching. Even some of these ideas and things we've been wrestling with as a staff, not wrestling with, but hearing and hearing these teachings as a staff over the last few years. And I'm still being refreshed by this series. I don't know about you guys. Are you guys beginning to see how different Jesus is than you and me? Are you beginning to see that? Like we've, a few weeks ago, we, and a few times through the series, we've, we've seen how Jesus looks at people, how Jesus sees people. And it's so different than me because where Jesus looks at people, I often look away. I often avoid. I often see as a burden, but he sees as a child with the image of God on them. So where Jesus looks, I look away often. Where he has compassion for people, where he feels deep compassion for people, I find that in my heart I often have judgment If I'm being honest, there are people that if I'm going to be honest with looking at these stories, I probably relate way too much to the Pharisees. I have this self-righteous judgment. So where, where Jesus has compassion, I often have judgment. I love seeing this other thing where Jesus is, he's completely secure. He's completely secure when I wouldn't be. Like that that's something significant. He's secure. So think about this woman going and washing his feet in the middle of this party. Listen, if I'm at parties and someone is doing even something slightly socially awkward to me, I am trying to get away from that person, if I'm being honest. But that's because I'm insecure. Jesus is secure in who he is. And so he doesn't have to get away from people. Last week, I was convicted as we looked at Jesus' anger, and I saw how different his anger is than my anger. His anger is so other-centered, and my anger is so me-centered. Like, as I looked at Jesus' anger and I saw how other-centered it was, I just couldn't help but think how often my anger is just me-centered and damaging to those around me. Jesus is so different than us. And this, in this series, we're getting to see this beautiful picture. And so today, we're going to see more of who Jesus is. We're going to see more of his security. We're going to see more of his peacemaking and love. We're going to see more of how he sees people. But in particular, what we're going to notice is we're going to see how Jesus is honest with people, but while also being gracious. Jesus is honest while also being gracious. That's what we're going to see today. And so today, the sermon, to give you an idea, the first part of the sermon, we're going to look at this story, and we're going to see who Jesus is in this story. And then the last part of the sermon, we're, 
We're going to see how Jesus lives out the gospel for us in this story and how even Jesus' very words and actions should push us into deeper understanding of the gospel. So we're going to be in John chapter 8. If you guys want to turn there today, John chapter 8. So uh, a few notes about this text. If you have the ESV that we hand out and even the NIV and probably a few other translations as well, you'll notice there are brackets around... Um, verses 753 through uh, 8111. Um, and so what it says, though, is in those brackets is that the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of John don't contain this passage, don't contain this story that we're going to be in today. And so this is what that means if you're not sure, if you don't know about that. Essentially, we have all these ancient manuscripts of, of all the books in the New Testament, and uh, we don't have the exact one John wrote, but we have copies of the ones John wrote that were made within pretty close uh, proximity to when John wrote his. And what that note is saying is that those earliest copies, those earliest manuscripts, they don't have this passage. They don't have this story in those earliest manuscripts. In fact, this story starts showing up uh, shortly after kind of the canonization of the Bible, probably around 400, maybe a little bit before, we're not sure. And so uh, sometime around them is when this passage began to show up uh, in John. And so all, like all scholars, all theologians, like people that look at this text, they would all say, hey, John probably did not write this passage, this passage that we're going to go through today. John probably did not write this passage. And so some of you are probably freaking out already, and so that's okay. Um, on the flip side of that, on the flip side of that, even skeptical scholars, as well as not as skeptical, as well as theologians, they look at this passage, and they believe that it's a true account of Jesus. They believe that it is an accurate account of Jesus. They, they look at the evidence from the early church and they see that the early church believed that this story at the beginning of John chapter 8 is a true story about Jesus. Even some of the most skeptical scholars. And so uh, if I'm honest, I, I, I do want to be hesitant in using texts like this at some times because I think uh, it can be problematic in moments, especially when people take other ancient manuscripts and they try to say that these ancient manuscripts disprove Jesus or show Jesus in a different, in a different light. If you ever heard of uh, the Gospel of Thomas, there's different scholars that have done that. And, and what we need to know, though, is the Gospel of Thomas and some of those other ancient manuscripts are not like this passage. The Gospel of Thomas, for instance, I think it was written in 1300, so many, many, many years after Jesus was on the earth. And then also, the early church didn't accept the Gospel of Thomas, whereas the, the early church widely accepted uh, this passage to be a true story uh, of Jesus. And so, uh, the more I look into it, the more I look at this passage and kind of come to it with my own curiosity, the more I see uh, really smart theologians, even skeptical theologians I know, uh, that would treat this passage as, as truly what Jesus did, truly what he said, and, and truly as, as God's word. And so D.A. Carson, Michael Goheen, Tim Keller are just a few to, na to name of, uh, of people that would, would say that this is a true account. And so I don't know why it got added later. I think maybe it's because John, at the end of John, I don't know if you know this verse, at the end of the Gospel of John, John does say this. He says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did 
were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So I think what happened with this passage, maybe it was orally passed around in the early church. Maybe it was something John used to disciple people with. Maybe someone else wrote it like Luke or something and it was passed around. I don't know, but I think that the early church said, hey, we, need, we want this in God's word because we know that this is something that Jesus did. And so they put it in John maybe because they're like, well, John at the end, he said, hey, there, if every book was written, it would fill the earth. So I'm sure John's okay with this. And so <laughs> I, 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 that's what I think. I think that's my, maybe what happened. So we can embrace this. Jesus, again, he was a real person. And so when there's an accurate account of Jesus, we see God in the flesh, okay? And so we can take this and we can see a picture of Jesus, okay? So after that, let's get into the text. Let's look at Jesus and let's see who he is from this text. Verse 2 uh, to start of chapter 8 says this, Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So, what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Okay, so Jesus, he finds himself in the temp temple as we often see him throughout the Gospels, teaching. And he's teaching people probably about the law, probably about God's word. And so he's teaching, and the Pharisees have hatched a plan. They have had enough of Jesus. They have had enough of this sort of authority that he carries over the law. And so they want to put a law test before him in order to discredit him. So they cast this woman that they had caught in adultery before him, and they say, Jesus, in the law that you claim to be a great teacher of, and I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit there, it says that we need to stone such women. We need to throw rocks at her till she dies. So what should we do, Jesus? So before we keep going and looking at their motive and what they're doing, let's read that law in Leviticus really quick to see what they're referencing. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10 is, is probably what they were referencing. It says this, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be surely put to death. So church, interactive piece, what's missing? The man, right? Typical, right? Like this is, like what's going on? I don't even know what I meant by that joke. I just knew it would get laughs. Um, <laughs> The man is missing. So these guys who think they know the law better than Jesus, who think they can discredit Jesus' knowledge of the law, they put forth this woman to discredit him. They themselves are not even following the law correctly by putting this before Jesus. They're not. There's no verse in there that are like, well, he got away. Like there's nothing in there. This was just a trap. This was just to oppress that woman and to discredit Jesus. This is so dirty. This is so evil. What's going on here? These guys don't want justice. They don't care about God's word. They just care about discrediting Jesus. They just care about hurting him and, I think, hurting this woman. 
And also, uh, I think Jesus can call their bluff because Rome didn't let uh, Israel just carry out their own death sentences. It had to be approved by Rome, and Rome carried it out for them. And so these guys wouldn't have stoned her to death either. But they were just trying to discredit Jesus, trying to say, Jesus, you don't really know the law. Jesus, you can't really follow the law. You're not really wise. You're not teaching anything new or different. They just hate Jesus, it seems like. So before we go on to the text, another little sidebar. Some of you are probably already wondering, is anything going to gloss over the fact that God commanded that anybody on the show Cheaters should just be killed? Do you guys don't have the show Cheaters? When I was a kid, there's a show. It's just like what it sounds like. They catch people cheating. And so am I just going to gloss over the fact that God says, hey, when people commit adultery, kill them in the Old Testament. And I won't gloss over it. I want to take a little sidebar. This doesn't really have to do with the message, but I think it's important that we talk about it so that we can understand some of these texts in Leviticus better. And so here's a few things to help us understand this law in Leviticus. The first thing to understand is that that law was for the nation of Israel, and the nation of Israel was under the Old Covenant, all right? The Old Covenant. So when you read the Old Testament, it could also be translated Old Covenant. And a covenant was basically when two people kind of joined in promised relationship. We would say marriage is a covenant. And they would say, hey, I'm in this relationship uh, till death do us part type of a thing. And so God, would ent- he, in the Old Testament, he entered into covenant with Israel saying, hey, I'm going to be here. Here's what I will uphold on my side of the covenant. And here's what I want you to uphold on your side of the covenant. And some of those things were like the laws that we see in Leviticus. And so those laws were for the nation of Israel. And what we see is Jesus brings a new covenant, okay? So hold on to that. So part of why God, I think, in this time and place uh, gave Israel this sort of law was for a variety of reasons. One reason was I think he wanted to show that Israel was set apart like God is set apart, So that word holy that we see throughout the the Old Testament describing God in the New Testament really means set apart. So God, he's trying to say, yes, I'm perfect in everything that I am, but he's also trying to say, I am so different and beyond humanity. I am so different and beyond everything that I've created. I am set apart. I am holy. And so when he gives certain laws to Israel in that time, he is giving them laws that will set them apart. He's giving them laws that are are unlike any of the nations around them at the time. And so that when people would look, when other nations would look and see Israel in that time, they would see a nation that was set apart that would reflect God's image, okay? So that's one reason. I think another reason God gave us these sort of laws with these serious consequences is I think that God is trying to communicate to us in the Old Covenant how serious sin is. I really think that. I think that a lot of times we want to go, sin's not that bad, hey, we're all bad. Like We try to downplay sin, but I think the whole old covenant where God is speaking to Israel, he is often trying to say, hey, sin is really serious to me. My created order, the things I've created, the shalom that I have for everything, you guys have messed up, and that grieves me, and I want to destroy sin. Like I think that that is what God is saying. In these sorts of laws, I think a lot of times, even right now, you're saying, oh, Anthony, fire and brimstone, whatever. And I'm just saying, no, I'm just reading 
the text, I'm just seeing how God has revealed himself. I think a lot of times when it, when it comes to seeing how serious sin is to God, I think it's a lot like, like trying to tell a two-year-old why they can't drive, right? Like we're coming to God like the two-year-old, like I want to drive. And, and you're like, no, you can't drive. Like, and the two-year-old's like, no, I can. It's easy. Like, and you're like, your feet don't even reach the pedals. And the two-year-old's like, I don't even know what feet are. And, and there's just... It's a, it's a confusing conversation. And I think sometimes when it comes to sin, and especially because of how much our culture and how much, if we're honest, we downplay sin, we want to go, oh, sin's not that serious. Why are these consequences so dire, God? And I think God is trying to say, no, it is that serious. It is. And I think we shouldn't take that lightly when we see something like that in Leviticus. Another thing that the law did, and this law did, I think, in particular, is it protected the community. Now, I know you probably are thinking, how does it protect the community? Because you're thinking of the consequence of the two people dying. But here's what I bet. I bet a lot of people didn't cheat in ancient Israel. <laughs> I bet a lot of people didn't commit adultery in ancient Israel. I, I just, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> like, there's a lot of things. Like, if we all knew if you got caught speeding, you'd be killed, you'd be like, I'm not going to speed anymore. You know, <laughs> like, I'll drive slower. I'll drive slower than the speed limit. Like, that's what we would do. And so I, I do think that the law was there to protect the community from themselves at times. But ultimately, this is what I think the Old Covenant does and what these laws point to. They point to the fact that we are sinners in need of a Savior. I think the whole Old Covenant is trying to say, hey, you guys can't do this on your own. Hey, you guys can't achieve. Hey, you guys can't be righteous on your own. Hey, you guys can't even make enough sacrifices for all the sins that you do. And so that we would look at the Old Covenant, that we would look at Israel and we would realize that we can't achieve. We can't be righteous enough. We can't be good enough. That sin is far more serious than we want to admit. And that there's no amount of sacrifices you or I could make that would be good enough. I think that's what the Old Covenant points to. Okay, so when we see something like that in Leviticus that's hard for us, we can realize that God is trying to communicate something to us that is important for us to hear. Instead of pridefully going, well, I don't know if he said that. or like, What if we just humbly said, maybe sin is more serious than I realize. Maybe the, the fact that I need to know how much I need a Savior is more important than I realize. Okay? So if that sidebar didn't just completely derail this entire story, let's keep going. Uh, the Pharisees, all sorts of evil, treating Jesus poorly, uh, oppressing this woman, uh, just looking to discredit Jesus is where we're at. They cast this woman before Jesus and essentially say, well, then stone her to death then, Jesus, if you know the law so well. And we see how Jesus responds at the end of verse 6, but let's read all of verse 6 as a refresher. This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Let me ask you this. This is a little bit of an interactive part for us. When someone, and I think some of you probably have this story, and so some people will be able to answer, some might not. When someone has tried to get you fired 
Or when someone has tried to humiliate you or prove you wrong in front of a group of people or, again, like humiliate you in front of a group of people, how do you react? Like, what do you do? What sort of things do you do? And you can just shout them out. Get defensive? Turn bright red? What else? Fight back, did you say? Strike back, yeah. Go home and cry. I, honestly, I feel like my, I was like thinking about this question. I was like, I think it's yell or cry is my two. That's what I would do in this scenario. Anything else? Right? There, there's all sorts of things that we, we would react. If we were put in this scenario, we'd yell or cry. We'd feel defensive. We'd strike back. We'd turn red and, and feel just embarrassed. And Jesus is in this, in this situation, right? And I, I think Jesus probably was feeling hurt by them. I know he's secure. I know he's God of all. But these are his people. These are his people. They should be in allegiance with him. They should have an alliance. They should, they should know God's word together. They should be working for the restoration of all things together. And yet they're attacking their Savior. They're attacking the Lord who made them. And yet, Jesus, how does he react to their evil and barbs? What does he do? You can answer it. He humbles himself. What does he physically do? He just bends down, right? He just begins writing. He doesn't yell. He doesn't scream. He doesn't strike back. He doesn't call from fire from heaven. He doesn't call for angels. He just bends down and begins to write in the dirt. Now, I grew up hearing a lot of kind of interpretations of what he was writing. Interpretations like, well, he was writing all of their sins. Or he was writing all the times they committed adultery and the names of the people they committed adultery with. Or maybe it even is, the Roman governors and judges at the time, they would write their sentence in the dirt. And I think there could be some of that there. Jesus trying to say, I'm the ultimate judge and authority. But I, I think it doesn't really matter what he was writing. And I, I think if it did, it would be in there. I think he might have been just doodling in the dirt. <laughs> like, I really do. I think he was just sitting there, hearing their barbs, and probably even just praying, saying, Lord... Help me not smite these guys. Like, I don't know. Like, I don't know. But he's just doodling in the dirt. It's almost like he's creating space. He's creating quietness to their barbs and their attacks. He's just receiving their barbs and attacks. Jesus is so different than us. He reacts so differently than we would. Let's continue in the story and see what keeps happening and how Jesus reacts. Verse 7, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw in a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. So they keep attacking him. They keep saying, what are you going to do about this? What, what are you going to do, Jesus? Are you going to stone her? 
What should we do? She's been caught in adultery. Do you really believe the law of Moses like you say you do? They, they keep attacking him. And so Jesus gets up and he wisely and concisely gives them a bit of a challenge. He says, let he who among you who is without sin throw the first stone then. And then he gets back down and writes in the dirt. Gets back down and creates space to be quiet. Space for them to think through. For them to think through what they're doing. Listen, again, if I'm Jesus, this is not how this scenario is going down. If I'm down there riding in the dirt, being quiet while they keep attacking me, when I stand up, I'm going to say, listen, Pharisee Dave, I know all your sins. Here we go. And I would just start listing them. And that's what I would do. But Jesus, instead of doing that, which would have been, I think, appropriate, he, he gets up and he loves them. He wants them to recognize their sin. He wants them to recognize all that they are doing wrong here. And he, do, he just says one quick sentence, and then he's back down quietly writing in the dirt. This is amazing. Looking at Jesus, looking at how he reacted to their barbs, this is going to be an interactive moment again. Looking at how Jesus reacted to their constant attacks on him in this moment, what does that say about Jesus' character? What kind of person is Jesus? You could shout out whatever you think. He's patient. I heard something over here. Also patient, maybe? Respectful. Slow to anger, loving, compassionate. He's a teacher. He's teaching in this moment. I love that. I think I heard kind, humble. He's all of these things, right? This is our Lord. This is God. He's patient. He's kind. He's merciful. He shows respect where people don't deserve respect. I think that's grace. He's gracious. This is our Lord. He's so secure. Let's see now how the Pharisees act and react to God, to love, being in their midst. Verse 9. But when they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So Jesus creates this space again, quietly riding in the dirt. I, I wonder, I, I can't, I don't know if this is true or not, I wonder if he was praying that the Holy Spirit would convict them. And they begin to be convicted, starting with the oldest. I love that. I love that picture of the oldest being the quickest to conviction. I hope when I'm old that I'll be quick to conviction because I'm, I'm only 31 right now and I'm already starting to feel like I'm stuck in my ways and my thought processes sometimes. I hope as I get older, I'm quick to conviction. I'm sensitive to the Holy Spirit convicting me of my sin. Starting with the old. They walk away. And then everyone else walks away. 
They were convicted. Jesus loved them enough to create space and quietness, even though they were attacking him with loud jeers that are unsure. And Jesus created space for them to be convicted, for them to realize the problem with their hearts so that they would stop this evil. Let's see what happens after they walk away and Jesus is left with the woman. Verse 10. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Look at how Jesus talks to her. Surely she just witnessed everybody leave. Surely her heart is uplifted just by the fact that Jesus challenged these guys and they all walked away. But think about this social humiliation that she's just been through. I don't, we don't know all the background and all the details of the story, but she's just been through some major social humiliation. And I really think that Jesus, to cut through, to cut the tension, to, to make light of this painful situation in a good way, to, to kind of take away from the power and the pain of this painful social situation, he's playful with her. Do you see that? He's playful. He's joking. He's saying, where, where are they? Where'd they go? So no one's here to condemn you anymore. Where, what happened to them? And she, she plays along. She says, there's no one here, Lord. And then Jesus is still, he's honest and gracious with her. He says, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. Look at Jesus, notice him. He's kind, he's playful, he's gracious in that he's not condemning her. Remember, we just read Leviticus. God does not like adultery. It grieves God's heart. And yet Jesus says, no, I won't condemn you either. But go and don't sin anymore. He doesn't just say, hey, glad those jerks are gone. See ya. Like he, he says, now you can go live in a way where you're not sinning anymore. Jesus is honest and gracious. Church, if, I, if I'm honest with you right now, I'm either honest or I'm gracious. I'm rarely both. And I wish I could be both always. Because I think more often than not, we see Jesus exemplifying both those things at the same time. Jesus is amazing. This is how he reacts to this story is amazing. Just the fact that he treats everyone with love in this story is amazing to me. I want to, we just spent a lot of time looking at Jesus, looking at who he is, looking at how he handles this situation. And I want to see, I want, I want to home in on kind of three little interactions, three little things that Jesus said throughout this story. And what we'll begin to see is that, that Jesus, not only does he love us well, but as he loves us, he shows us what the gospel is. And so as we look at Jesus' life, we can have a deeper understanding of the gospel. We can have a deeper understanding of the good news about us being saved, the good news of God's kingdom coming to earth and beginning the redemption of all things only to one day come in its fullness. Okay, and so I want to look at a few of these interactions so that you and I might know the gospel more. The first interaction is this. 
It's, it's the one where he says to the Pharisees, let he without sin throw the first stone. He was saying something very radical to them. He was saying something very radical to that crowd, but I also think it's very radical to this crowd. What he's essentially saying to them is, everyone is guilty. Everyone can be condemned. That's what Jesus is saying to them. These guys that had their Bibles memorized, that lived holy lives, that Jesus was saying to them, even you guys can be condemned. That was crazy to them. They said only the obvious lawbreakers can be condemned. And Jesus said, no, everyone is guilty of sin. That's radical to that crowd, but that's radical to our crowd too. Because Jesus says to us, every one of us is guilty. Every one of us can be condemned. When our culture says, none of us can be really condemned, let's not do that. Only like if you hurt someone else or, or do something really, really bad, but no one else can really be condemned. And Jesus says, no, actually everyone can be condemned. That's radical. And the reason I think it helps us understand the gospel better is, again, if we don't take the lessons from the old covenant, that we are sinners in need of a savior and we can't get to that savior on our own, then we will never truly understand the gospel. We will never get how much we need Jesus. We will never get how good of news it is that the Savior has come to save us if we don't see that we are guilty, that we can be condemned. We need to recognize that in order to see the beauty of our Savior. Okay? Second interaction I want us to look at is I think we can have a deeper understanding of the gospel if, when we look at Jesus saying, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Notice, Jesus doesn't say, I can't condemn you. He says, neither do I condemn you, which is, it, it, it's basically like saying, I'm choosing not to condemn you. I'm choosing not to condemn you. Do you know Why? Because Jesus knew he, in his new covenant, was going to take on the world's condemnation. He knew on the cross, as he died, he would be taking on her condemnation. That's why he could be gracious and kind and honest with her. Because he knew he was walking to the cross where he would die and he would be condemned for her sins. He would step in her place. I love this verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So when Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, it helps us to understand the gospel better because Jesus is saying, I will take on your condemnation and I will give you my righteousness. You're not righteous. You're messy. You're sinful. I'm taking that on on the cross. You are worthy of condemnation. You are worthy of death because of your sin. I will take that death for you because I know no sin. And I will give you my righteousness to protect you from the wrath of God towards sin. That's what Jesus is doing in this moment. He's not saying, I can't condemn you. He's saying, I choose not to because God is bringing about a new covenant with his people a covenant predicated on his work and not our work. 
A covenant predicated on everything he does and not what we do. All we have to do is trust that Jesus has done this for us. And that should help us to understand the gospel better. I also think we can understand the gospel better by kind of if we look at the wholeness of this phrase. That neither do I condemn you, go and from now on sin no more. When Jesus is saying that, he, he is showing the, 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 how the gospel works, how the good news of being, being a Christian, of following Jesus, what it looks like. Here's what I mean. Religion says this. It says, hey, if you want to be part of our religion, you've got to follow these things. If you want to get to heaven, you've got to do this. If you want to come back, not as like a cricket, but like as a dragon, you've got to make sure you're really good. Like if you want to make sure all these things happen, you've got to do all these things in order to get the prize, in order to be part of our religion, in order to be part of this. Jesus, though, in the gospel, and the good news, he says something different. Jesus says, I've done all the work. I accept you into my family. And then out of that, we go and sin no more. Out of that, we live in response to Jesus doing all the work, accepting us. And then we go, and we're not trying to earn Jesus' affections. We're actually responding to Jesus' affections. We go, we're not trying to get to heaven we're trying to praise God for bringing heaven to earth. That's what we're doing. That's living out the gospel, and that's so different than, hey, you've got to do all this, you've got to do all this to be part of this. You've got to believe these things, you've got to do these things. Jesus says, no, I've done it all. I accept you. You are in. And then we go and live rightly in response, in worship. And when we mess up, we just remember that we've already been accepted, that Jesus has already paid it all on our behalf. So when Jesus says, go, and from now on, sin no more, he is showing us how the gospel works, how the good news works. We today, we, we kind of have a choice, like this lady had a choice. She, she, had, she had two religious examples. She had the, the Pharisees and the scribes who she grew up with and saw and knew. And honestly, I think some of their ways were probably appealing to her. They knew the Bible. They could explain it well. She could go follow their path of kind of self-righteousness, of earning it. Or she saw this other religious figure, Jesus, who gives her better news. And she could go and live like him. But here's the thing. When she goes and lives and is like Jesus, it's not to get his affections. It's because she already got his affections. And I'm pretty sure she probably went away that day worshiping him for the rest of her life, living like him, not to earn his affections, but in thanks and appreciation of the affections he had already given her. Church, may we be like that too. May we see the beautiful picture of Jesus and who he is. May us not try to achieve that. May us look at that, be thankful that we've received that, and then worship him for that. Amen, church? Let's pray. God, we love you. We need you. I'm so thankful for your, the story about you. God, even with the 
in our own humanness, our confusion, our skepticism about this story. God, I, I feel like this story just rings so true of you and who you are. I'm thankful that you made sure it got back in your word. I'm thankful that we have this picture of you. God, you're so amazing. Like You show us who you are. You show us the beauties of who you are. You show us your love, your security, your patience, your kindness, your gentleness. And then all the while, you're also showing us the good news of the gospel. God, how amazing is that? How can you do both at once? I can't even do one of those things, Lord. God, thank you that we just have to trust, that we just have to put our faith in you, that we don't have to put our faith in ourselves, but we can just put our faith in you. Thank you that you've accepted us and loved us already. Help us to realize that and know that if, there, if we don't know that to the depths that we should. God, help us to never become self-righteous like the Pharisees. Help us to become humble servants of you, responding in worship to what you've done. God, we love you. We're so thankful for you. Thank you for showing us who you are. Amen.